from WIPR and PRX. It's out of the blocks. One city block. Everybody's story. Everybody's story. Everybody's story. Everybody's story. Everybody's story. Pop the stone just like this, and it, your hand become a mold. Oh, my name is Samuel Wallace. We are in a Jamaican coil building, a hand technique class. And we dance around the bucket while working with the clay. You put your palm down on the oyster, on the top of the oyster, and if you see back here, there's a hinge. Okay, so you take your knife, gently stick it under here, and just kind of work it, and twist your wrist, and it pops open. My name is uh, Jimmy Ernest. You learned how to do that when you were eight years old? Mm -hmm. <laughs> My name is Shakira Harris, and I work at the Village Vet, and I'm a receptionist. My name is Jenna Feaser, and I'm a receptionist here at the Village Vet at 1620 Soul Grave Avenue. When you walk into the lobby and there's a dog that just comes like running up to you and is jumping on you and they've never even met you before, it's just, what a greeting. <laughs> From producers Aaron Hankin and Wendell Patrick. Out of the blocks. 1600 Soul Grave. Right after this. You're cutting off about a softball chunk of clay here. You're wedging your clay up. Now, um, for this technique, we, we you would say you wedge your clay in your hand. If you're going around, you pop this down just like this, and it, your hand become a mold. So we just put this into a round ball. So I have this now, I'm ready, so now we put it down. Pop this down just like that. Then it depends on how big, how wide you want the bottom to be you will flat this down. So as you notice, I will come in this way. So now I'm going to open the bottom. My hand became a compass right here. So I'm opening the bottom, just like this, going around. This is a traditional technique that come all the way from Africa. And then it come to Jamaica, and I brought it from Jamaica to the U.S. and established it, and we're having fun doing this thing. Uh, my name is Samuel Wallace, and um, we are in a Jamaican coil building, a hand technique class, and we dance around the bucket while working with the clay. You got to shuffle around. You can't stay one place and get where you're going. So instead of the wheel spinning, you're spinning you, around the bucket. You become the wheel. And the way you build the walls up is you just coil up a little more clay and right. on it goes as you spin around. It's everything just keep climbing upward. And you keep on shuffling around. Now if you walk around, you're going to get dizzy. So you, what happened? You come around the other side when you're pulling up. So clockwise, you're pulling up on the outside. Count a clock, you're putting on the coil on the inside. When did you learn this technique? Who taught you? Oh, I've been taught by one of my family members. Some about 50 years ago. We grew up doing this in the backyard of our home when we was in Jamaica. I watch your hands as you're uh, shuffling in circles around this bucket, and I can tell there's decades of muscle memory in those hands. They know, I mean, you probably don't even have to think about what you're doing at this point. Yeah, it, it's, it's automatically, as you put your hand up to put everything in, you, you're doing it, it goes to do the right way. If something is wrong, 
I can talk to my class and working on my piece. And if I'm doing something wrong, I can tell without looking down what's going on in there. So, you know, sometimes they ask me if I have some eye because I see all my students at the same time. If they're even trying to take a shortcut, I would call out to them and they ask me why. Well, when you're walking around in circles the whole time, you see the entire room. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I know exactly what they do. <laughs> Do you, when, when you're not working and you're standing around, do you find yourself kind of pacing in circles? That is so true. <laughs> it is so true. You can't stand. You have to keep moving my feet. I keep moving my feet all the time. That's what happens. It's been amazing to watch this, uh, this vase come to life while we were having this conversation. I mean, you've almost got this thing finished now. So watch this thing change, it's just like in life. This thing takes changes, life change. So the step of this was the ball of clay, a lump of clay and the turn out, and now it became a vase. And the thing coming up is the beauty of what it's supposed to be. Clay is some, I mean, some of the oldest objects that we have are ceramic um, because they can survive but it also just sort of speaks to the need for people to create and express themselves. Mary Clunin, Baltimore Clayworks, 5707 Smith Avenue. Well, we're a nonprofit art center that focuses on ceramic arts. Uh, so there's sort of four main program areas. We have our classes for um, you know people to come and um, try new things. We have um, resident artist studio space on the second floor. Then we um, also have our community arts where we go and engage in um, a Baltimore neighborhood and bring um, like an authentic art experience, clay to kids, seniors, you know, whoever has the space to welcome us in. And then that all kind of culminates into the gallery spaces where we have um, the community arts gallery and other galleries so that the artists get to show off their hard work and talent. When was Clayworks founded? Um, 1980. So next year is our 40th. So I have all these brushes, all the underglazes here, and some samples to give you some idea of what it is that uh, you can expect. I'm Volker, Sean Fleece, uh, an instructor. I'm also one of the founders of Baltimore Clay Works. <clears throat> well, there were a group of us. We were originally from Towson University. And then we stumbled upon uh, the, the library here in Mount Washington, and it was up for disposition, which means that it was available depending on how you convince the, uh, the neighborhood associations and business associations that you were a viable uh, organization. So that's what happened. Uh, this is a foundations class. I have about 11 students. I'm learning a lot about expressing my artistic side and being creative and I'm making friends and Volker just explains everything and he doesn't mind explaining it the second time. And he's always going to make a suggestion when I need it and help me when I need it. It always helps me. What color do you think you'd like with this blue? <laughs> I try to get them involved in as many aspects of clay as possible from hand building to actually throwing. I have a few students right now that continue to want to throw, which is great. Uh, so I'm just starting out um, with uh, some clay on the wheel and um, the centering process shouldn't be all that hard. It's just, for me, that still remains a hurdle. So each time I get the clay centered, it's like this uh, 
blissful moment where I can start to actually make something, um, you know, cover a bowl, and then once I start that, then a whole set of other things can go wrong and likely will. So it's typically uh, that kind of process of uh, stumbling into new places where you can make mistakes. The great thing about clay, especially as, you know, when you're a teacher and, you know, someone's getting frustrated with it, you're like, all right, well, we're just going to wedge it back up no harm, no foul, and start again. So it's it's forgiving in that way, and it's sort of like the perfect metaphor for, you know, taking, taking stock of your life and trying again and having something beautiful at the end. One, two, three, four, five. Great. One, two, three, four, five. You guys sound quite similar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Right. I mean, a lot of like, yeah, we do a lot of things. Several times we'll uh, walk in and just look at each other and start laughing and be like, oh my God, you have the same color shirt or exact shirt or pants on that I do. It's funny. My name is Dave Lichty. And I'm Rob Frisch. Mount Washington Tavern, 5700 Newberry Street. Which one of you guys wants to start the story of uh, how you guys know each other? I'm happy to. I mean, we both started here within two weeks of each other back in 1980. September of 86. 86. Uh, I was tending bar and working in the kitchen. Dave is a bar back, and um, we've been close friends ever since. My mom didn't want me to work here. She, she didn't want to be a busboy. What's that going to do for you? And apparently, if you hang out long enough, you can buy the building. <laughs> well, Ted Bauer, who was the previous owner of the tavern, came to me at one point and said he wanted to scale back his business interest and did I have an interest in buying it. And I said, yes, I did. So I approached Dave to become my partner. I walked into my house, sat down at the kitchen counter and said, you interested in buying the tavern? And I said, yeah. So that was it. <laughs> that was the extent of our conversation for that. So Rob was married when he started here. You were not, but you are now. Tell me that story. Uh, my wife, I knew her from Towson. One day uh, she came in and she was working here and we became even better friends while she was working here, and my mother's the first one that noticed it. She said, you two hang out a lot. And I kind of looked at her and she goes, yeah, that's what I thought. Then the rest of the story is fell in love and got married and have a good life. Okay, so my name is Kathy Lichty, and I mostly bartend here. So right now we are in the front tavern room, and I also bartend upstairs in the Sky Bar on weekends. Is this how you imagined uh, your life would turn out? No, <laughs> but it's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Let's see, I think when I was a kid, I wanted to be a nurse, and then I wanted to be an architect, and then I wanted to be a professional basketball player, and here I am in a restaurant. But it's, it's a happy place to be. It's a lot of fun. Um, no regrets. Kathy's one of my best friends. Uh, I was actually in her wedding to Dave, so we've, we've, uh, we've seen some things go on here and done some of the goings-on ourselves. I am Shannon Maddox. I'm a manager here. Um, you'd be shocked to know how many people, guests and employees, have met and dated, have had children and families, and we have tons of people that come in and say, oh, our first date was here. It's unbelievable. In 2011, we had a fire. It was the night before Halloween, and that flag right there, is the flag that used to hang over the sky bar and it was rescued from the fire so we mounted it on um you know netting and that was the original flag that used to hang over the tavern i uh, got the call from shannon shannon was in the building overnight making some uniforms and i got a call from her at one point 
She said, I think there's a fire in the sky bar. And then the tears started and she said, the fire engines are on the way. I woke up my wife, we got in the car, it started blowing down here and I started calling his house. And That was probably the worst phone call I've ever gotten, by the way, that four in the morning, <laughs> that it was on fire. But they described it as a small grease fire. And so I was driving down kind of mad thinking, oh gosh, we're gonna have to close, get the health department to reinspect us and all that fun stuff. Well, as soon as I came over 83, the hill by capital funding, you just saw the sky red and you just knew it was not a small grease fire. And we just came around the corner, parked and walked down and kind of shook our heads and said, well, things are going to change. Stood there and watched it as walls would fall down and then the liquor room exploded. So there was a huge fireball that went up. I always said the inside of that liquor room must have been wild because there's a lot of liquor in there and they would have been boom, 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 boom. And it was uh, it's not a fun day. Talk to me about what it was like to open this place again then, a year later. Uh, what was different and what was the same? So one thing the fire afforded us was the ability to bring everything up to code and make it flow better and really work to be the operation that it is today. Certainly not intentionally, <laughs> but you, you sort of make the best out of the worst that happens. Thank goodness for good insurance. You come back bigger and better. You know, the building turned out beautiful. So it's neat what we were able to do with it after the fire. So like I said, every cloud has a silver lining, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and it came back up out of the ashes, so to speak. <laughs> you put your palm down on the oyster, on the top of the oyster. And if you see back here, there's a hinge. Okay, so you take your knife, gently stick it under here and just kind of work it and twist your wrist and it pops open. And then what you do is you slide it under, cut the muscle. There you go. You learned how to do that when you were eight years old? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you still have all your fingers? I still have all my fingers. I, have, I do have some scars. There's one there. This one I stuck through my hand. Uh, so there's, there's been a couple of them over the years. But for the most part, it's, it's not that hard. You, know, just, you don't be afraid of it. You know, if you just show the oyster that you're not afraid of it, it'll open up for you. My name is uh, Jimmy Ernest. Uh, been here at the Mount Washington Tavern for s almost exactly 17 years. My dad uh, is or was a Chesapeake Bay pilot. So we would make trips down to the Eastern Shore and pick up these outrageously good Chincoteague oysters. And I got to be about eight years old. My dad said, yeah, you know, Jim, I don't think I'm gonna shuck this one for you. Here's the knife and this is how you do it. So he showed me how to shuck an oyster and a few stitches later and some scars, uh, I managed to master the craft and uh, I still shuck. Uh, my, my dad is 90 years old. I take uh, a dozen oysters over to him every other Sunday and shuck them over at the house and he still slurps them down. He's my best friend, uh, always will be. He was my best man at my, my first wedding. I've had three since then, so. But anyway, um, dad's always been there for me if I just needed an ear. You know, somebody to you know, listen to me talk or whatever, but uh, he's always been an upstanding man. He's always taken care of us. He, he and my, my mother have been married for 63 years. So it's one of those uh, relationships that you look at. And I remember being on the beach about 10, 12 years ago when my parents were still going to the beach quite a bit fishing. And my mom and dad came up and said, Any, have you caught anything yet? And I'm like, no, nah, not yet, dad. And he goes, all right, we're going to take a walk. And I can just remember watching them walk up the beach holding hands at 80-some years old. You know, they, they were still boyfriend and girlfriend. And it's, it kind of brings a tear to my eye right now talking about it. But uh, they're, they're two, of the, two of the best people I've ever met. 
I'm, I'm proud to be their son. It's out of the blocks, 1600 Sawgrave. One city block, everybody's story. When you walk into the lobby and there's a dog that just comes like running up to you and it's jumping on you and they've never even met you before. It's just, what a greeting. My name is Shakira Harris and I work at the Village Vet and I'm a receptionist. My name is Jenna Fieser and I'm a receptionist here at the Village Vet at 1620 Soulgrave Avenue. The key to working in this field and doing it well is being able to work with humans and animals together. A lot of times you don't know what people are going through in their lives and you have to be the person that kind of like breaks that down and just have them take a deep breath and just kind of come to it in a more rational mindset. They're coming in because their animal's sick. You don't know how, if that was your animal, how would that be affecting you, you know? So compassion is, I mean, you have to be compassionate to the humans and the animals. That's the only way that you're going to be able to succeed in this field. So it just, it's just my job to be like a therapist for them. Full disclosure, my family comes here with our dog, Gidget. Yes, we love Gidget. <laughs> we came in here a while ago because we were concerned. And um, we got some pretty heavy duty news from you. Talk about what it's like to break the news to someone that their pet is in a terminal condition or you know, you're dealing with animals uh, oftentimes at, at the end of their lives. Yeah, definitely. Like our job typically is, unfortunately, we have to be the voice of an animal because they, they don't have a voice to speak on. Um, so it's really difficult when you have this pet come here from a puppy or whatever age it may be and they spend their like weeks, months, years with you and you get a certain rapport with them. Like you love them like your own. And I cry all the time because it's like you get so close with these animals and to have to, you know, unfortunately break this down to the owner is a very difficult thing because you just, you break up so much, but we try our hardest to be able to break it down to you in a way that it's, that that's comforting. Animals have emotions like dogs have cortexes, just like humans do. You know, it's a, these are emotions that mimic ours in such a strong way that it's hard to not be emotional. So it's, it's, it's rough. <laughs> it is, yeah. My name is Kendall Kelly Adams. I am the administrative director at Mount Washington Animal Medical Center. What do you think we as human beings get out of a relationship emotionally with an animal that we don't get out of relationships with people? I think it's a transparency. Honestly, I mean, you know, you, you either have an animal that likes you or it doesn't. I mean, you know, it's very immediate that you will understand how that dog responds to you. So I need a scalpel handle. How are you around blood? I'm all right. I'm probably going to hold the microphone over there, but I'll just maybe look at the instruments over here while we're doing this. I'm not going to pass out or anything. Okay. My name's Robert Barry. I'm a veterinarian at the Village Vet in Mount Washington Village. And my voice is going to be a little bit muffled just because I'm putting a surgical cap on and a, a uh, mask. This guy has a big slab fracture on this tooth here. The pulp cavity is compromised and we're going to have to do a dental extraction. I'm just going to reposition the endotracheal tube tie. 
you know, there's just a sense of calm in, in dealing with it. You've, you've done it before, so, you know, it's not any different than, you know, putting together a puzzle. You just develop ways of dealing with it and you do it, and it's, it just becomes second nature to you. Let me have a towel. I just want to prop the head up. I need to make my releasing incisions. All right, perfect. This is the part that's going to look a little medieval, if you will. And we're just going to put the chisel in between the, the cut that I've made and the tooth. And I'm just torquing it. And that's just slowly stretching that ligament. And that is the root, the back root in its entirety. Did it, did it ever cross your mind to become a doctor for humans as opposed to a veterinarian? Um, well, I think that's sort of a sub-story for me because my father was a doctor and I wanted to do something different for my father. But uh, the medical and surgical aspect was still very compelling. But I think the, the good thing about the experience of growing up as a son of a doctor is I saw the lifestyle that he did. And I, I often amused myself by the notion that I thought I was going to engage in a profession where I wouldn't have to be dealing with clients you know, late into the day or on my personal or family time. And then, you know, lo and behold, you find out 10 years later, you're doing the same thing that your father did. It was an easy transition for me. I've, I've seen other doctors that have had, you know, a little trouble with that concept of the, the sacrifice on, on your personal time. Do you have another towel? I just want to turn his head. We're through the most painful part of the whole process, so we're decreasing the depth of anesthesia by reducing the concentration of anesthetic gas. Put a suture through that. When you're dealing with a worried pet owner and they admit their patient into the hospital and you, you do what you are trained and skilled to do, there's a certain amount of gratification uh, that comes from seeing you know, the look on a client's face or the expression uh, over just seeing a, a pet that's been restored to health. Dr. Barry is one of the most thorough vets I've ever worked with. He's very thorough and very uh, kind. He's my dogs, my personal dogs, uh, primary care vet as well. You know, I trust him implicitly with everything. I guess in our human lives, with all of the complicated relationships and ways that we can disappoint each other and break each other's hearts, it makes those relationships with pets sort of all the more special because of their unconditional love. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, think about when you're sitting alone in your room, you're thinking about all these different things that are going through your mind, and then you and then your dog sitting there right next to you, just like looking up at you, and that's the only thing that's in their mind. Like they're not thinking about what happened 10 minutes ago or what they went through like a year ago at the vet. They're just thinking about you in that moment and then you just feel that unconditional love and that's just, it's really, really special. I mean, I feel like if more people thought about actual humans that way, then maybe the world would be a better place. <laughs>
listening to Out of the Blocks. From radio producer Aaron Hankin and music producer Wendell Patrick. With production assistance from field producer Eve Austin. And WYPR's Katie Marquette. You can podcast this series and check out photos online at WYPR.org slash Out of the Blocks. Aaron and Wendell want to thank all of us who took a leap of faith and share our stories and our lives. From WYPR and PRX. This is 1600 Soulgrave. Signing off. Signing off. Signing off. Coming up next time on Out of the Blocks, we're in Southeast Baltimore's Highland Town neighborhood. We're going to visit a Dominican barber shop, a Peruvian chicken spot, one of the city's oldest pizza parlors, a tattoo artist, a neighborhood handyman, and this woman who serves your morning coffee with her own customized words of inspiration. It's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's up to you if you want to get there, you know? So, especially someone who had a life like me, yes, don't give up. And it's been many times I felt like I was very safe. Forget this, done. No, don't. Because here I am 15 years later and I'm a different woman. I'm I'm vibrant. She's getting a lot of with the shot. Hazelnut, right? Cachet at Higher Grounds Coffee on Eastern Avenue next time on Out of the Blocks. And by the way, if you've got a minute to spare, do us a favor and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your comments really do go a long way to helping put this project on other listeners' radar. So thank you for spreading the good word. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you soon. Out of the Blocks is supported by PRX and produced with grant funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Cohen Opportunity Fund, the Hofberger Foundation, Patricia and Mark Joseph Shelter Foundation, Inc., the Kenneth S. Batty Charitable Trust, the MuseWeb Foundation, and the William G. Baker Jr. Memorial Fund, creator of the Baker Artist Portfolios, online at bakerartist.org. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.